0: Hi, everyone. Seth Abramovich here from The Hollywood Reporter. And Chip Pope
1: of the Pope family. <laughs> but about that? The one Pope. <laughs> the one Pope. The young Pope, now uh-huh. the new Pope. <laughs> yeah,
0: we'll call you the new Pope. <laughs> so welcome back. And uh, this week's guest is uh, who I consider Mr.
1: Showbiz, Nathan Lane. Yeah, I didn't get to be here for the recording of it. I was in Texas over the winter break doing some stand-up, but listening back to this, I wish I would have been there, because it was such a fun interview. Oh my god, we had so
0: much fun together, me and Nathan, and Chip is going to listen along with you, all of you, and and give his impressions. I consider him to be one of the most talented, hilarious, uh, sort of iconic performers of his generation. Although, I don't even know what his generation is. He's so timeless. I feel like he just—he could have been a a huge star in like the talking twenties in the silent era. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, in the twenties and the thirties and the fifties. He just has this timeless nature to him, and it was a real treat to have him here. And uh, we'll get more into it right after the theme song. On it It happened Happened in in Hollywood. Hollywood.
1: Chip. That's me. What do you think of Nathan Lane? What, besides how you mentioned he's transgenerational? Yeah. I think that's pretty cool. <laughs> that's pretty cool right off the bat. I really like uh, Nathan Lane a lot. Saw him in The Producers with Martin Short. Oh, wow. It was fantastic back at, wow, this is probably like 2002 maybe or three at the Pantages. Oh, okay, here in LA, but yeah, live on stage. yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it was a lot of fun. They were a great team. Yeah, he always really
0: impressed me. I think I first took notice of him when he was the lead, Nathan Detroit, in um, Guys uh, and Dolls Dolls on Broadway, Uh and he got a Tony for that. Oh, wow. In fact, his real name is not Nathan. He took the name Nathan from the character Nathan
1: Detroit. Whoa. It seems like he secreted a lot of his life, in a way, as you'll find out. Yeah, it's actually Joseph Lane. Joe Lane. He is,
0: like... Broadway legend, it's all kind of just like mixed together. But he has a few iconic roles. One, you already mentioned, the producers, and uh, the one we're going to talk about today. Modern Family. Oh. No. He, but he is on that. He, he is on that. But no, 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 no. We're going to do The Birdcage. Yes, The Birdcage. Which is Mike Nichols' adaptation from 1996 of La Cage aux Folles, the French movie, farce. Mm -hmm. Um, Which before becoming the Americanized version with Nathan Lane and Robin Williams as the gay couple at the center of it became a Broadway musical called La Cage a Fall. Right. But I think ever since he saw the original, Mike Nichols wanted to make his version of this movie. And this was his realization of that.
1: And a reunion with Elaine May, his old comedy and improv partner. They have the Falling early Out,
0: 60s. and uh, this was their big re collaboration, and it was a huge hit for both of them. So, uh, a fun one to delve into. But since I had Nathan here, you know, I had a feeling he had a really interesting sort of origin story. So we're going to go a little bit backwards. We're not going to go right into the movie. I'd like for you to hear Nathan talk about what his childhood was like growing up in Jersey City right across the river from Manhattan. As a kid, I was given a lot of books by
2: my oldest brother, Dan, who eventually became a teacher. And because my father died when I was 11, so I think he felt he had to fulfill that role in some way. And... Both he and an uncle of mine would give me books as a young child. So I was a voracious reader. And I was sort of fascinated by the Algonquin Round Table, that group of sort of witty writers and journalists who would gather at the Algonquin Hotel and drink and uh, make witty remarks. And they were all desperately depressed or <laughs> tragic in some way. and And yet they lived this well, at least from that perspective, a glamorous life in, in New York City. So in New York City seemed very far away and exotic to me. And reading about, also reading, I, it was my brother, my oldest brother Dan, who also got me interested in the theater. He took me to the theater. He actually volunteered my services as an actor, uh, as a kid, in a college play that his friends were putting on. So I don't quite know why he decided that I would be involved in the theater. It may have been because, in, you know, when I was around 10 or 11, my both brothers, I have a, another brother, an old, another older brother, a middle brother, Bob, and they took me out and, to throw a football around. And then after about 10 minutes, I, I, I called them over and I said, listen, I am not a sportsman. I said, you know, 10 or 11. So perhaps he thought, he thought, well, if he's not a sportsman, perhaps he, he wants to go into show business. So... Yes, it all seemed very glamorous. And when you, when you would, you, I would watch the Tony Awards and, and, uh, and that seemed uh, very, very glamorous. And I was very enamored of all those actors, those, you know, Robert Preston and Zero Mostel. And so I started reading plays as well. I joined a, a play of the month club, in fact, called the Fireside Theater. Uh, the first play they sent me was The Odd Couple by Neil Simon. And it was very exciting getting that. I, I remember looking at these black and white Martha Swope photographs, Art Carney and Walter Matthau, and and reading it and and reading it in a geography class. Of, you know, I had this. I stuck the the play inside a book and was reading The Odd Couple and and, and, and you know burst out laughing and Sister Liam Neeson. Grabbed me and said, what's so funny? And I said, you know, it's uh, the, the international dateline is imaginary. Um, <laughs> she beat me senseless. But certainly that was an influence on me. Neil Simon, Eugene O'Neill. You know, I, I just read a lot of plays and about the history of the theater. And then eventually was doing. I was doing plays in school, and you know, as as far as you know, my home life went. It was it was difficult. I, I, my father was a, an alcoholic and who drank himself to death when I was eleven, and my mother, not long after he died, she was going through what was then described as manic depression but now we would call bipolar but it wasn't diagnosed as such for several years and she was in and out of mental hospitals and and I had to grow up very fast mm. so I'm sure it was also an escape you know I was very interested in in, in, in comedy as well and, and all, you know we, they used to show on television old old Laurel and Hardy films or Abbott and Costello or, Jackie Gleason and the Honeymooners, um, you know, I was, uh, I loved Gleason as a kid. And I was sort of a student of all that. I wanted to read about all, you know, the old silent comedians, and, and uh, I wanted to know all about it. Yeah, you know, I'm sure it was an escape, and comedy was certainly, a, you know, it was used as a defense mechanism. I was a little, uh, a chubby little kid, and before anyone would make fun of me, I would make fun of myself, and sort of classic
0: mm-hmm.
1: Defense mechanisms. Did you do that, Seth? Did you make fun of yourself? or uh, what, did, what was your defense mechanism? No, I made fun of other people. See, so did I, <laughs> as, a, as a young, prepubescent gay child. <laughs>
0: <laughs> really? And we still make fun of each other all the time on this show. We're working our...
1: Yes, we're working it out. But I mean, out. but it was like uh, authority figures and stuff like that. It wasn't like yeah, other, it was, other kids. It was you know?
0: the teachers. That's who I used to, I think, make lives miserable.
1: Yeah, so it's sweet when, you know, the ones when you hear people making fun of themselves first before somebody else can get to it. You know, you hear about that. And, uh...
0: Yeah, just to hear it from Nathan, you know, he had the classic uh, upbringing of, you know, that there was a lot of pain there, a lot of sadness, and sounds like he also didn't fit in and... um and so he turns to comedy and drama and fantasy to sort of find some happiness there. And right.
1: His family was Irish Catholic. Right. Chip. Even though, yeah, I, I really thought he was Jewish. Yeah. He has, I don't know, maybe because he does, like, Jewish, he has that sense of humor. That's the Borscht very, Belt yeah, uh, delivery. Right. But, and um, has done so many things in Jewish parts. So I guess, you know, Max uh, Bialystok seems jewish to me maybe it's just mel brooks makes everything seem jewish he's honorary jew yeah
0: Okay, so Nathan is enamored with theater and um, he starts getting involved in, in smaller productions and theater companies, doing some stand up. He finds a partner and they
1: have a little like Nichols and May esque comedy routine. And one- uh, Yeah, I thought that was wild that they're like opening for Eddie Rabbit and Air Supply. It's <laughs> so crazy to think of Nathan Lane doing that. And one uh, recurring theme you'll see in his story is that. A lot
0: of the people that he aspired to or just was a huge fan of, he ended up collaborating with. So, uh, you know, it, he had that uh, Neil Simon play that he hid in his uh, w- book at Catholic school. Well, he later ended up being in that play on Broadway. Yes. And Elaine May, he wanted to be like Elaine May and Mike Nichols. Well, he just happens to star in this show. So th- there is this, uh, wh- how did you put it, Chip? Secret it.
1: He secreted like himself. The secret. Right. He, he made it happen for himself. It's funny. I tried to write that down one time and it just says secreted. So you <laughs> got to be like secret, secret <laughs> dash ED. Like he secreted it because it's in print. It doesn't work. <laughs> he secreted himself into the lives of these legends.
0: But uh, one interesting stop on the way to uh, fame, uh, he got a good shot at a TV show with Dana Carvey, of all people. And the story he tells about this, I just thought was amazing. We <laughs> got to let you hear this one. I
2: got an audition and I got a, a job doing this a situation comedy for NBC with Mickey Rooney and Dana Carvey called One of the Boys, which, wow. you know, we did like 13 episodes and not a very good show. It was a strange experience. I mean, Dana was, you know, brilliant. But uh, he had some sort of deal with NBC. So he was, uh, he was attached to this thing. And, and originally it was a show that was written for Jack Albertson, but he died. <laughs> so they got Mickey Rooney, who was riding high again because of the Black Stallion and Sugar Babies. And he was in New York doing Sugar Babies and thought in his spare time, he was, he was going to milk this for all it was worth. He would do a sitcom um, during the day while well, he was doing eight shows a week. Um, <laughs> remarkable, and uh, but this shot here—we or... shot in New York. Oh, then that's okay. what got me back to New York. Oh, okay. I, I had been living here for about a year, and then went back to New York to do this sitcom. We did thirteen episodes. So
0: that's probably your big break, is would be the sitcom, no? With Mickey Rooney and
2: Carvey. You and would think, but no, it really wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't very good. It wasn't, um, and it was just a, a fascinating thing to be a part of, because you had new show business, Dana Carvey, and you had old show business, Mickey Rooney. And he, you know, I just remember Mickey didn't understand Dana. <laughs> he didn't get it. He, he liked me because I seemed old school right. comedy. And Dana was something he couldn't quite pinpoint. Uh-huh. Did he uh, tell you good stories about Judy or? He was, you know, just a, a you could see what it, the, the, the emotional Scars of having to grow up in the studio system at MGM sure. and having been, he would always tell you, he was the biggest star in the world. And then it all went away. So he was an immensely talented person. And when he put his mind to it, he was a really good actor. And, you know, when you see him as a kid in, in some of these things, with movies with Spencer Tracy, Boys Town, or, or the, the, the musicals with Judy Garland, he was unbelievably talented. But he was, at that point, he was reveling, I think, in in his, this renaissance, but also there was a tremendous amount of bitterness, even though he had, or uh, uh, used to tell us that, you know, he had found God, he was sort of a born-again Christian, but he was angry, he was a very <laughs> angry guy, and, you know, and he had reason to be, you know, he went through a long time of you know, wandering in the wilderness of show business and, you know, but he wanted him anymore. And he, I think, he, you know, there was a lot of drinking and a lot of, you know, dinner theater mm-hmm. uh, that he had put behind him. And, and uh, you know, I, this, this story I tell is, there's a story, there are many Mickey Rooney stories. We would do 90 minutes on Mickey Rooney, but I don't think you want that. But we had to film a little 15 minute pilot a presentation for the network to decide if we all had chemistry and it was all going to work. This sad little premise. <laughs> Dana, Dana played a college student who, who rescued his grandfather from a nursing home and brought him to live with with him and his a college roommate in a little apartment off campus and you know, hijinks ensued. So <laughs> you're the roommate. I was the, I was the cranky roommate. The, up, the uptight roommate. And so we, uh, it was terrible. It was a terrible show. Anyhow, we were waiting to shoot this little pilot in front of uh, a studio audience and we were sitting in a, in a little green room with Mickey and uh, he was very quiet and then he turned to us and he said, uh, let me tell you something kids, this is going to be the most successful show in the history of television. And so Dana and I were looking like, you've got to be kidding. This, this thing is cool. we will be lucky if we last 13 episodes. The greatest success in the history of television. He said, And we're going to be rich. We're going to make a lot of money. I mean a lot of money. We're going to be so wealthy. And then on our hi- hiatuses, we'll, we'll do a stage version of the TV show and we'll make even more money for that. He says, because let me tell you something. And he's getting louder and angrier. He says, "I and Tina Turner made $8 zillion last year and Judy Garland died a pauper. And so by now we're, you know, backed against a wall, frightened. And there's a knock on the door. And They say, uh, we'll be ready in five minutes, fellas. He says, OK, thanks very much. <laughs> he was just sort of getting warmed up for the show. But he was a complicated fellow. <laughs> wow. A complicated man.
0: Okay, now this is why you want Nathan Lane on your podcast. (laughs) For for these Mickey Rooney stories. Mickey... His head's
1: spinning off, thinking about all the money that he hasn't yet earned. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like he's just been sitting around for like 30 years waiting for his comeback. to is what's going to happen. He's going to milk every second of it. Well, I think it was a bit of a cautionary tale
0: for Nathan at that point, who was just on the yes. verge of stardom. What he didn't want to end up being, even though he right. so admired this guy. Okay, so... You know, he paid his dues. That show was not the launching pad he thought it would be. But he, you know, he paid his dues doing uh, off-Broadway and then finally working himself up to uh, Broadway. And his big breakthrough part was in this Neil Simon play, Laughter on the 23rd Floor, which was sort of inspired by Simon's uh, experience as a writer on your show of shows with Sid Caesar. Right, with all those great writers that were on there. Mel Brooks... Yeah, I mean, it had Reiner, every, Larry every classic golden age of TV comedy writer on that thing. And uh, it was just, you know, the biggest show on TV. I guess Saturday Night Live would be a comparison, but it was bigger than that. But anyway, he ended up getting the part of the Sid Caesar part, which was totally casting against types. Sid Caesar was six foot two and two hundred and fifty pounds, and Nathan is a lot smaller than that, but right. he was so talented his his talent was such a huge force that they kind of reconceived the part and and gave it to him. Wow. And so he was the star of this thing. He was the star of the show within the show, and he was the star of the show. and one night, someone very important came to see it with his very famous wife, Kanye and Kim? No. No, not
2: Kanye. Oh. I was doing this play, and, and Mike Nichols came to see it. I, I had been filming, doing a film during the day, and I sort of got there a little late. I didn't go on until half an hour or so into the play, and, and, uh, and I, lo- I, I actually, you know, I sort of looked out in the audience, and I saw, I saw Mike Nichols and Diane Sawyer in the audience. And I had met him briefly once before, introduced by someone, and... and uh, you know it's he's he was like a godlike figure and um i knew he had seen me in other theater things but then uh, i was very surprised he came back afterwards he'd never done that and he was very gracious and said uh, i'd like to talk to you about a film and uh, so i said sure <laughs> and so i called him the next day and he said I want to do this remake of La Caja Folles, And uh, uh, Elaine May would write the screenplay and Robin Williams would play opposite you. And, and I said, well, which, uh, which part are we talking about? Is this the, the drag queen? And he said, yes. And I said, oh, well, that's a, that's a very good part. He said, yes, that is a very good part. And so that's how it began. It's a long, complicated story. Because initially, they were going to make this film with Steve Martin playing the Armand character, and and Robin was going to play the character that I eventually played. And then Steve couldn't do it, couldn't get out of him. He had another commitment, couldn't get out of it. And then Robin decided he had been in drag and Mrs. Doubtfire and would prefer to play the more restrained role and not get an address. dress. And then that part opened up, and somehow he uh, thought of me. But I had you know do you know the history of lecagephon you know the the you know it was a play it was a play a, play that in Paris. a French film it was these two guys, and interestingly, a comedy team, Jean Poiret and Michel Soro, and they were a very successful comedy team who did television and then Jean Poiret wrote this farce, this French farce, and they did it on stage for like eighteen hundred performances and then made this film and something I was reading was. I, I find this really interesting. When they made they made the film and Poiré just wrote, co-wrote the screenplay with Francis Weber and, I, I don't know, the producer. And, but I think it was Francis Weber who included these two rather key scenes in the movie. Because when I saw the movie in the, in the late 70s in New York, it was sort of, I thought it was just so subversive what they had done mm-hmm. because it was just, it, it looks like a French farce, but, you know, the the gay people were the heroes and the straight people were the villains. And I thought this was, you know, it was just, and it was also hilarious, but they added these two scenes in it that I I thought were crucial, which one was the, um, the scene in the, I think it's at a train station or a, bus stop, and in the birdcage the, the bird cage is at a bus stop, I think where he's going to go off to the cemetery to die, and he stops him and he and follows him and sits down with him and says, You can't i can't i'll I'll have to be buried there too because I know I can't live without you and and then there's another scene uh, where when he comes out in a plain suit and says, I just want to help, you know, and he tries to be, I'll just, you know, I'll wear this dark suit and he's still wearing pink socks. <laughs> right, right. And it's the same, exact same scene in the, in the original French film. And apparently, the Michel Serreau, who was so brilliant in the original, who I stole a- a- anything I could from him, because he had played it, you know, for years on stage and was he was slightly miffed about this had been strictly a farce and was a little annoyed by having to humanize this uh, flamboyant character. Uh, and yet they're two of his greatest scenes,
1: and, and, it, and it also just adds so much. Indeed, and watching The Birdcage, I hadn't seen The Birdcage in probably like 20 years. That's the thing about those scenes that do make the film a little deeper 'Cause I, I recently rewatched the film and that scene. It's at a bus stop, I was running boy, I bet this is like right halfway into the movie. And sure enough, it is, you know, time wise. <laughs> it's like sixty minutes into a two hour movie. It's the classic midpoint of a movie. The tone of it is a little bit different than everything else. And it really deepens the movie, but it illustrates what Mike Nichols was so great about and Elaine May in comedies that they do. They would Play it for laughs, but it would always be grounded in a in a real reality, so it never got too out of control to where it seemed unbelievable. You know, they just have a good um, sense of walking that line between the farce and keeping it real that you still believe in the characters.
0: Yeah, and you know, to his credit, he left both those scenes in pretty much exactly as they were in the original film because he knew how how well they work. Yeah you do get very invested in their very real relationship. And that's what makes the movie work just moving along. So he gets offered the part, but he had committed to be in another big Broadway production of uh, a funny thing happened on the way to the forum, uh, which was to be produced by Scott Rudin, who's produced many films and Broadway shows. And um, he thought he couldn't get out of it. So he turned the part down, but Mike Nichols was determined to have him. And he finally just said, Mike, why don't you go talk to Scott Rudin? You're kind of a big deal, and I'm not quite a big deal yet. And he did, and they agreed to do the show a a year later, which helped the show. It did really well on Broadway, because at that point, he was now a movie star because of the birdcage. Wow. So all's well, that ends well. But he did have hesitations, because... This was a very openly gay, unapologetic drag queen part. And Nathan uh, was out, I think, from the age of 21. He was out to his family. But as a professional actor, he wasn't. And the idea of now being a movie star, internationally recognized movie star who's out, you know, made him a little jittery.
2: You know, I have been in movies, but I uh, all, in, only in small supporting roles or so... Yeah. I mean, I did think, oh, well, I'm going to be in a dress. But it's it's such a great part. And you're working with, you know, legendary, you know, Nichols and May, to me, were you know, I, they just, as a team, that was one thing. So the notion of them having this reunion, you know, she had helped him out. Uh, they had been estranged for a long time. And mm-hmm. then she had helped him out on a this movie Wolf, which wasn't going so well. It was an unhappy experience. And... So they kind of really totally reunited on this. They had always wanted to do this. They loved the plot, one of the great comedy plots of all time. And so – and I think Mike, frankly, just – he wanted a big, fat commercial hit. And he had – at one point, you know, there was the, – the, the musical, the Jerry Herman musical had been very successful. And because and at one point he tried to do, there was a version of, of La Caja Fall that they were going to do that Mike was going to direct, which was, was a totally different. I think it was, I'm, I want to say it was Maury Eston wrote a score. And it was set in New Orleans. And it was called the, the Queen of Basin Street. And, <laughs> okay. and then that didn't work out. And then Jerry Herman did it and it was a huge success. So this had always sort of been on his radar. And uh, so to work with them you know Elaine May is just one of the most extraordinary talents ever and 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 Robin who was you know so incredibly generous and and such one of the sweetest and most sensitive souls and just a a perfect collaborator and and partner and uh, I was very very lucky to have had that and everybody it was one you know Mike always used to say um Nathan, I only want nice people on this movie. I would say okay, that <laughs> seems like a good idea. I, nice people are
0: <laughs> nice people are good. That's helpful. Okay, so I guess not everyone knows what Nichols and May is. So for our uh, uninitiated uh, chip, our resident um, comedy librarian, Wow! Um, can you can you Put give a on quick rundown
1: on um, Nichols and May? Pretty much now, Nichols and May in the early sixties were the toast of Broadway. They did improvisations, which was new and interesting, exciting. You know the Chicago Chicago idea, and they would turn these improvisations into stage shows. So they would come up with the sketches a lot of times in improvisation and then turn them into full-on two-person sketches. And so they did a lot of these sketches on TV shows, on like Jack Parr show and stuff like that, where they would just go and do like a seven-minute sketch. And it was that kind of humor. It was very revolutionary at the time because it was character-based. It was not as broad as TV comedy had been. So it was more in that kind of like Bob Newhart, kind of cerebral, low-key... Yeah, there was some amazing, very
0: very subtle humor happening in the early 60s.
2: Mike Nichols and Elaine May.
1: Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Welcome to Long Dust. Can I help you?
0: Yes, I read your ad. I'm interested in the $65 funeral.
2: Was that for yourself? No. (laughs) For another. Uh, May I ask, where did you catch that ad?
1: (laughs) TV Guide. And then they had a falling out. I'm not sure if he went off to direct movies after the falling out. It's got to be that way, right? Well, Nathan knows about the falling out, so we'll we'll let him tell a little bit more about that. But uh,
0: first, he's going to talk about his first time meeting Elaine May, who was just this giant, towering figure in his life until that moment and this is their meeting i was holding this screenplay in my hands because i read it and thought it was great
2: and she's and she just looked at me with sort of mock exasperation and said i did the best i could (laughs) I, i said well you i think you did better than that i think it's great and you know it is wonderful to see them together mike and elaine and how protective he was of her and and uh not that she needed protection but you know she's a brilliant woman but it was great seeing them together i remember one we had a dinner once where i i, I had brought my Nicholson may record and asked them to sign it yeah i think people forget that they had had a falling out yes it had, i mean i think they i think they would talk maybe on the phone you know it was too they had such a bond and it was to the way they exploded when they first came to new york after chicago and Took Broadway by storm, and the, the records, and TV appearances, and and the yeah, and they and changed kind of the face of comedy. They were so original, but uh, yes, they had done a play. She'd written a play that he starred in, and then it, w- it was a disaster. And then he had a clause where he could get out of it or something, and it was that that sort of led to the falling out. Mm. Eventually, she did that play again. And then renamed it. It was called Taller Than a Dwarf. And I think Matthew Broderick started it. And it didn't go well that time either. It's poison. But it was not a whatever. As brilliant as she was, this thing didn't work. But um, so, yeah, they had that uh, bit of a falling out. And, I, you know, and I think they both had to find their ways. You know, he would, would have happily gone on as part of the comedy team. And she didn't want to do the same thing over and over. She wanted to explore and improvise. And he liked Polishing it and presenting it. And, you know, what's so bad? And, it's, and they're loving it. And so, uh, but it's sort of what that, the, the breakup that you know, also led to him directing and having this tremendous career as a director and her own directing and writing.
1: So they broke up in 1961, which is crazy because they had just started getting really popular in 1960. Wow, and then uh, that's like compare that to a rock band. That's yeah, like, uh, it's like if the Beatles broke up in 1962. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but anyway, he, he he wanted to direct shows, and uh, he went off to be a director. And of course, you know, he turned his uh, directing Broadway shows into movies. You know, with uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? His first movie, The Graduate, the Catch Graduate, 22, yeah. Carnal Knowledge. Angels in America an Angels <laughs> in America which is fantastic he's he's really he's one of the best directors that this closer with Natalie Portman Closer great movie underrated movie but he is uh you know not from this country but yet he's one of the top American directors of all time but anyway they broke up until the birdcage which is what 61 35 years later that's that's kind of crazy that they didn't work together for 35 years Yep and Nathan Lane are. brought them back together so they're filming the birdcage now in Miami and on uh, I think on
0: sets in Hollywood. And quick rundown on this plot. Uh it's basically they they run a a cross dressing drag club, mm-hmm. like RuPaul's drag race to our younger listeners. <laughs> and um the husband is the owner, he's the more masculine of the two. You 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 know, it's kind of old fashioned Takes on gay couples where one is the man and one is the woman. So they're married. They have a long, beautiful relationship. The drag queen half of the couple, who is sort of the the MC star of this drag review, very dramatic and you know taken to fainting couches and very <laughs> diva kind of
1: behavior. And then a the type hi- that does exist in reality.
2: <laughs> Are you trying to ruin me? Don't look at me. I'm hideous, hideous, fat and hideous. <laughs> I hate my life! Oh if there was a packed house okay? Oh, that's all I am to you, isn't it? A meal ticket. I can't stand. Never mind about my feelings. Never mind about my suffering. It's just about your show. Not even our show. Your show. Well, I want a palimony agreement. And I want one now. Well, I don't have a palimony agreement on me right now. Is tomorrow all right? Don't use that tone to me. What tone? That sarcastic, contemptuous tone that means you know everything because you're a man and I know nothing because I'm a woman. You're not a woman. Oh, you bastard.
0: The husband is, you know, trying to keep everything going at the club and they're very popular and they have a beautiful life. And they have a son, the... the Robin Williams' character. The Robin Williams' character has a son from a previous little affair with-
1: uh, um, Christine Baransky, Christine Baranski, character. who's like- I don't like remember a, their names either.
0: A very amaternal a- uh, person who happened to give birth to this uh, son. The son reappears, <laughs> he has a fiancé, and he's asking the parents- The fiancé's parents are very conservative. He's asking, can we tone it down, maybe even pretend like uh, you're straight? Yes. And it leads to this uh, big comedy of manners, uh, farcical uh, dinner scene where the drag queen character comes out in drag and they think it's a woman and and, uh, hijinks and hilarity ensues.
2: Armand is much more sophisticated than I am. But then he comes from such good stock... (laughs) Oh, just like these two adorable youngsters, don't you agree? Where's the bathroom?
1: Huh? I'll show you. Oh no, that's okay. That's okay. I- I'd-, I'd like Mother
2: Coleman to show me. Oh my dear One child. Kiss. Oh, oh, I'm, not, I'm only going to the bathroom. <laughs> well, I'll go. Oh well, I think you're all crazy, <laughs> my man. Isn't this wonderful? Oh. All of us together, all of us. we This is so moving. I think I'm going to cry.
0: But, as we mentioned before, the real heart of the movie is the relationship of these these two guys who really love each other. And when it came out in the 70s in the French version, and even in the 90s in this version, uh, there was something kind of quietly radical about seeing two men love each other on screen. Yes. Now, if you've been listening this season, you know we did the Making Love episode with Harry Hamlin, and the world was not ready for a gay uh, serious drama dealing with, you know, not poking fun and laughing at the idea of gay, but, um, birdcage was a farce. And so it did kind of play well in the Midwest people Mm -hmm. were, it was very easy for them to laugh at these ridiculous characters and their dresses and their fainting fits and all that. It it kind of fit, you know, what people thought of as gay stereotypes and, um, that, you know, rubs some gay people the wrong way. But one interesting case study is actually uh, one of the characters in it who was played by Hank Azaria. Why don't we first let Nathan explain a little bit about how Hank got cast in the part of the houseboy in this movie. Hank Azaria, you know, the, initially it was based on
2: the original play and film. It was supposed to be uh, an African-American in, in the, as the maid. And then suddenly when they had the read-through, everyone got a little uncomfortable with that, (laughs) (laughs) even though it was – you know, he was just this big screaming queen and it was supposed to be funny. There was something about it that made people uncomfortable. And Hank was doing like a number of different roles. Uh, uh, Mike was a fan of his from – he had done the uh, Robert Redford film – About a quiz show, and he loved him in that. So he had him read several different parts, and one of them was the stage manager at the nightclub. And for that, you know, because he's so brilliant at dialects and voices, and he talked in that accent, Mm -hmm. with with that what became known as the the Guatemalan accent, (laughs) and everything he said was funny. (laughs) So they said, "I don't think this is working so well." But the notion of we're in, we're in. Uh, South Beach, and uh, they have this Guatemalan servant, maid, whatever you want to call him. So that's how he wound up playing Agador Spartacus. Um, <laughs> Agador Spartacus. Uh, anyway, and he was so, yes, Hank was just brilliant. Everything, every single thing he said to me was hilarious, hilariously funny. He also got himself all buffed up. <laughs> I don't think he's ever been so buff because right. he had to run around in those little tiny jean shorts and tank tops. And he was great, just great. And that yeah, that was certainly a movie that kind of really helped put him on the map.
1: She hard for the money. So hard for the money. She hard for the money. So you better dream me right. Uh, that's right. So what did you think
0: of the uh, the Aligador Spartacus character?
1: You know what? It's very broad, I guess. I remember the first time I saw it, I thought, that guy's hot. <laughs> I mean, that was the extent of my cultural uh, appraisal of it, which is, uh, I'm not proud of that. But I guess uh, viewed under today's light, you know, Hank Azaria, he's gotten in a little hot water for just plain other ethnicities that he's not. And sexual persuasions in this case. But yeah, he's
0: obviously very talented, very funny, is really great at voices and accents. Uh, He does tons of them on The Simpsons. But yeah, in recent years, uh, his Apu character on The Simpsons has come up under heat for being uh, both a racial stereotype and inappropriate for a white person to be doing. And, uh, and, you know, they're, uh, I understand, phasing the character out. Right. This is similarly, he's playing a very flaming gay airhead Guatemalan house boy. (laughs) Right. And I don't know if it would really work anymore. No. It it
1: wasn't quite as hilarious to me as I think the first time I'd seen it. No, there'd be like an uproar. You know, for good reason, because say you are a gay Guatemalan watching something, uh, watching this, you'd be like, wait, what? Where's that guy from? New Jersey or something? Where's Hank Azaria from? (laughs) And what's so funny about being a flaming uh, Guatemalan?
0: I mean, uh, I don't find it funny, but that's we're in the identity politics era now, where right. we're making fun of someone's ethnicity and or sexuality is is not
1: kosher. But uh, in the '90s, it was still okay. Or you could be a Guatemalan and you think it's hilarious. I mean, this this is the thing about life. That's you know? true. Like we always go, well, what about that? But you know, the person that it is. Supposed to be portraying, might go, I love that. I think that's my favorite thing. So, this is why times are always so confusing. Personally, I thought uh, Hank Azarias was amusing,
0: but uh, a little bit grating after a while. I preferred Nathan Lane's performance. But part of that is because Nathan Lane is maybe authentically a gay man. Yes. But uh, he wasn't out at the time of uh, the movie coming out. And he actually didn't come out till 1999 oh, officially. Wow. And he was very open about talking about uh, his thinking as to why he came out at that time and how he came out. And uh, here's him on the subject of coming out as a celebrity.
2: You know, I came out when I was 21 to my mother and to my family. Everyone knew. Mm -hmm. And certainly everyone in New York knew. But yes, this notion of coming out publicly as if I was a public figure, because I didn't feel like a public figure, but... No one had really been that interested in my sex life up until then, <laughs> and then this film happened, and I was faced with I, you know, suddenly I had a publicist, and they had to say, "Well, what do you want to do? You're about to walk in. You're going to walk into a room filled with journalists, and this is going to come up." And I just said, "I don't know if I'm ready to have you know to start discussing this, and I don't know whether I want to be that." This is. I finally get a nice role in a movie and I I want it to be about the acting and not a coming out Mm -hmm. story and right or wrong. That was my decision. But, you know, especially at that time, you know, it's okay now for people or especially straight people to say, I don't like I don't want to discuss my personal life. But then you might as well have said. And by the way, I like cock. (laughs) So it was useless. It was a useless (laughs) thing. Then I was asked. People forget this. Then I was asked by Us Magazine, "Are you gay?" And I said, "I'm 40, single, and I work a lot in the musical theater. You do the math. What do you need? Flashcards?" I thought I had come out, but apparently I didn't. That wasn't enough. So then finally I said, "Okay, we'll do the Advocate interview." And um, and then people were just annoyed that I came out. You know, yeah, we already knew. Fuck you. You can't win. Yeah. So there was no winning there. Now, in retrospect, yes, I, I should have, I, I just should have gone with it, but it was all so intimidating and I was honestly, I was terrified, and it was not you know people accused me of always going back into the closet, which I certainly wasn 't or that you know what does he think he 's going to become a leading man in movies and I, it wasn 't that at all I was just the notion of going into a room full of strangers and discussing all this was was just terrifying to me I had to go I went on the uh, Oprah with Robin. And he – and, you know, we had to discuss this beforehand. I said, I'm not ready to discuss whether I'm gay or not with Oprah. I just – I'm just not I, – I can't – I can barely deal with meeting Oprah, <laughs> let alone telling her I'm gay. And, and uh, if you ever see this thing, it's um, – she says to me something like, uh, oh, you're so good at that girly stuff, <laughs> whatever it was, and – he and Robin, you obviously sense that she might be going towards the sexuality question, and he immediately swoops in and and d- diverts the the uh, interview uh, away from that uh, to protect me. Which is so sweet. Yes.
1: But was it like when you realized that you had the role? Were you uh, looking forward to the trip every day?
2: Absolutely. Uh, every day I ask Mike Nichols. I still have this role, don't I? Really? And um, it was uh, it, it was extraordinary to work with people that, first starting with Mike Nichols, who yeah. who is sort of his legendary. Were you afraid director. of taking
1: that role and being like typecast and people forever saying, "Are you? Are you not? Is he? Is he, honey? I don't know." Um, Girl, you changed just in the middle of that sentence. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I'm telling you. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Don't make me
1: come out there. <laughs> <laughs> I what was yeah. so <laughs> what was the question
2: <laughs> All right quite honestly I wasn't ready for I wasn't ready for any of it and and uh, you know it's funny there's a there's a um, the only sort of uncomfortable moment in the making of it was the use of the word fag in the movie and and it was sort of a uh, I said something about Alexander the Great was a fag or mm-hmm. something like that. I said it. I think Robin said it once. Uh, and I couldn't figure out why they wouldn't – why Mike and Elaine wouldn't let go of this because I said to them – I said to Mike, not not to Elaine. But I said, you know, as the only gay person in the scene, I feel a little uncomfortable saying this. And I don't know why the character would be using that term. And I don't know whether it was because it was from the original play or screenplay, or whether it was they grew, came up in a generation where "fag" was a, a viable punchline. <laughs> uh, I don't know. But as I as I said, I, I felt lucky just to be invited to the party. So it was very hard for me to to question him <laughs> mm-hmm. at all. And this was a very sensitive thing, and he said we tried many different versions of the line, and then and then he and then he did the classic. He just said, "Just do one for me," uh, in the original line. And of course, that's what, what he used. And I was naive. I was just like, "It's my nickels. What am I? You know, I'm just lucky to be here." And then, and then of course, then when it, if it's shown on television, they have to bleep it now. Right. And then the movie had come out, and. Um, I was sitting in a cab in traffic in Manhattan and there's a guy in a truck and I was just starting uh, next to me and I was just starting to deal with, oh, I've seen people are recognizing me. I'm, you know, this has not happened before. You know, occasionally, you know, people recognize you from the theater in, in New York. Uh, that had happened, but the fame thing was beginning to happen and there was a man in a truck and he looked at me and he smiled and he started pointing at me and he started to scream, hey, faggot. He just kept saying faggot, like several times, and I was, like, y- humiliated, and I thought, uh, I wish I wish Mike was here for this. Um it, You know, and it was sort of the other side
0: of fame. Oh, that sounds horrific. Yeah, it was awful. Was it happening a lot, or...?
2: No, that but I'll always remember that after mm-hmm. the this is after the you know the movie has come out and it's successful and and this guy and you with you thought he was smiling and was just gonna wave or say something nice and he's he kept saying faggot hey
0: faggot, God, well yeah, that just pisses me off. You yeah. know, it's well, like he, yeah. he makes it big. He's like a movie star, and he has to endure this kind of just demeaning, disgusting behavior from
1: just some jackass in a car in a truck screw you whoever you are right well maybe they were covering up for something and they and they learned the error of their ways later because uh people evolve but it's a harsh word it's a harsh word even if you've earned the right to use the word that's the problem yeah and it's interesting that he,
0: he was the only one objecting to using it in in the script and it's funny i pulled up the hollywood reporter review of the birdcage and the word makes an appearance there. Although in his element and having no trouble making his portrayal of a, quote, middle-aged fag Arnold into a memorable screen character, headliner Robin Williams is relatively subdued as the calm and responsible nightclub owner half of a gay couple. So Mm. it's kind of like... The movie is giving uh, the media the, the,
1: the right to use it. And, right. and it just kind of perpetuates itself like, oh, yeah, that's OK to say that. If he said it. I mean. Right. And that's one thing that straight people don't always understand, as good as their intentions are, that when you, you know, the there's always a thing with like, well, why can't I say that? Right. You can say that. But. You know, I also made the point
0: to to Nathan that, you know, it it, it did a lot of good for, you know, to open people's eyes to to gay relationships. And like he was mentioning before, the scene in front of the boat at the bus stop was a a very touching scene that I think moved people and made them see same sex couples as 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 legitimate as uh, opposite sex couples.
1: Yes. And it's also coded when you have Robin Williams doing it, too, because you go, well, he's not gay. You know, there's certain things that whether they work on an unconscious level or a conscious level. But as the that review actually does point out, this is a good segue. uh,
0: Robin Williams did play against type in this movie and he played the uh, more sedate straight man Mm -hmm. to Nathan's, you know, over the top screaming drag queen. Right. Which was a a change of pace for him because you knew what was inside that he was not letting out. Right. Right. And there are still a few Robin Williams-type moments
1: that people expect.
0: Yeah, actually, Nathan tells a great story about working with Mike Nichols, and probably the most famous single moment in the movie almost didn't make it because Mike Nichols didn't think it was in character. But uh, well, we'll let Nathan tell the story. You know, when Mike was one of those people who, as a director, he – it was like you
2: entered into a love affair with him. He loved the actors. He was so supportive and, and he literally would sit in the video village watching and they'd have to put a blanket over him because he would be laughing so hard at scenes <laughs> to keep, him, keep it quiet. And, you know, he's, he was a, a formidable intellect and, and wit and, you, you know, there was also the part of him that made you a little nervous. This was when we did the scene uh, where I'm singing the song, rehearsing uh, the song that Robin has written written that uh, actually Steve Sondheim wrote, um, and I'm singing to this sort of beautiful guy, one of the dancers, and and he's chewing gum, and I'm <laughs> upset by it, and so. We were supposed to do this in a full, there was going to be a set, and I was going to be in a full drag, some interesting costume by Ann Roth. And and that very morning, Mike suddenly said, this is all wrong. And he threw it all out. So people were scrambling to come up with a costume, and a, you know. And so they put me in sort of flash dance rehearsal togs right. and, and – uh, and that's where we were going to do the only real sort of in, in re- We rehearsed it like a play. And so there were, um, Robin had come up with this you do an eclectic celebration of the dance, this famous moment where he, he runs through different choreographers. Right, right. Michael was, Kidd, Michael Kidd. Yeah, Michael Kidd. Kidd, Martha Graham, Martha Graham. <laughs> Madonna, Madonna, Madonna. But there was no ending to it, mm-hmm. it he just had this list of choreographers. And then he was just going to walk away from it. And then that morning, Mike said he was whatever mood this was, which made him throw everything out and start from scratch. Maybe it was his improv background. He needed to do that. He was suddenly he seemed to be toying with the idea of cutting that that little improv that it was out of character for for Robbins, uh, for Armand. And so he because it didn't have an ending. And we stood there and it was very tense and we all were kind of trying to come up with uh, something, a line, a joke. And I said, and then I finally said to Mike, you know, a director once said to me, I love what you're doing, but keep it all inside. And he said, yes, (laughs) say that, Robin. (laughs) Robin.
0: So, so that's how we, so we answered with, yeah, but you keep it all inside. So you save that bit, which is an iconic bit. (laughs) That's amazing. Was it hard for Robin to not do his, his, you know, crazy improv stuff?
2: We had had a dinner after it was all over, and he said it was very hard for him to watch me carry on in that way and, and, uh, you know, to have to be the more restrained character. But I thought it brought out uh, wonderful things in him as an actor, and he was very moving and very, you know... And he's, you know, he's always, he's, he was incredible. What about me? What do I do? Do I just
1: stand here like an object? No.
2: You do an eclectic celebration of the dance. You do fussy, 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 You do Martha Graham, Martha Graham, Martha Graham. Or Twyla, 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 Twyla. Or Michael Kidd, Michael Kidd, Michael Kidd, Michael Kidd. Or Madonna, Madonna, Madonna.
1: But you keep it all inside. Very underrated, you know, up to that point as a dramatic actor because uh, you look at something like World Accord and Garp He's fantastic in that and so grounded and, you know, but the flashier part was uh, John Lithgow, you know, got the award in that one. And so it would take audiences a while to accept Robin Williams as a serious actor. And then the next movie after Birdcage was Seth. Um Goodwill Hunting? Yes. Oh, wow. Which he uh, won an Academy Award for. So. But he had done Good Morning Vietnam, which was kind of dramatic. That's true. Definitely like the last part of Good Morning Vietnam is very uh, dramatic. He always, you know, walked that
0: line where he could be just absolutely ridiculous and hysterical, but also just make you cry at the drop of a hat. Oh, we miss you, Robin. You know, Nathan obviously had a very close relationship with him working on this film and that feels very warmly towards him. And um, he talked about their relationship after the film and also what he didn't realize was going to be their last time ever seeing each other. Was shortly before Robin's death, on uh, on a lot while they were both filming their respective TV shows. So here's Nathan talking about Robin Williams. Did you stay in touch with Robin after the, the film?
2: Yes, a little bit. Um, yeah, yes, we would. I mean, talk from time to time, and he was, yeah, he was always lovely, and yeah, I mean, I can't say that we became close friends. I mean, he was it was certainly. Uh, uh, a lovely working relationship and and he couldn't have been kinder to me uh, I mean certainly he could have asked for anyway I mean he could have said you know we're gonna make this big gay movie let's I need another movie star opposite me and he didn't you know he and I don't think he was that familiar with me um, it was really Mike's recommendation that I play this part and he you know and then after the first read through he was just he you know he was always incredibly supportive of me and and uh he was a very special person um but no we didn't keep in touch in that way uh, you know from time to time we talk on the phone or, um but uh i had seen the last time i saw him actually i was i was doing uh, i did an episode of modern family and he was on the lot doing this. He did a sitcom uh, for CBS. Brad Garrett was in it. And, and I, so I dropped by and I saw him and we chatted briefly. He was in the middle of filming, so we couldn't really talk, but we just, you know, said hi. And, uh, and there had been talk. Was, there was always talk about, oh, doing a sequel. Someone was always suggesting this, and it never happened. Because the original French film had two two sequels, but the second one isn 't so good i mean the, the premises are kind of funny. The second one is literally like a spy thing <laughs> They get involved in a spy ring or something and they put a you know a piece of microfilm in his you know in his dress or i don 't know what it is it 's crazy, but there is some very amusing set pieces in it. And the the two of them, Ugo Tognazzi, uh, Italian actor, uh, a star, and uh, and Michel Serrault again, um, are hilarious in it. And then the third one is, the premise is so good, but the the film isn't so great. He uh, that he has to marry, he has to marry a woman in order to inherit all this money. And mm-hmm. you know, they have the reading of the will, and they say that he just faints on the <laughs> <laughs> um, So there was there was talk of doing a sequel, but it never materialized and there was always some rights thing and and then around that time uh, uh, there was talk about trying to do because of you know Netflix had started and there was a talk of doing could we do like a a series about you know using those characters and, and revisiting it now that they're older and and you know the kids have grown up and they have now they have grandchildren and it's you know, and gay marriage It was the notion of could we do a movie about gay marriage with these two guys who have been together so long and then it leads to them finally getting married mm-hmm. um, and then but that then, then it never you know happened because uh, uh of Robin's uh passing so.
0: Do you remember what you talked about on the lot that day? Did you discuss those projects or
2: oh just you know just uh, i was just happy to see him and that i was i was uh, it seemed like the 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 show was going very well it it had debuted to very good ratings and I was just congratulating him and it was not you know it, he was literally in the middle of filming they were like shooting mm-hmm. scenes and so he couldn't talk for long we just while in a little break he we chatted
0: and and uh, so and little could you ever know that it'd be the last time you ever saw him. Yeah, 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 yeah.
2: Well, and just the whole, you know, this, this, what, the, what he was going through, this Louis body dementia and, and, uh, you know, and I think um, Bobcat goldthwaite, who is his best friend and has talked about it. What he, you know, people, I don't think realize that he was going through this. He had sort of. Parkinson's like symptoms and but uh, that his brain was sort of disintegrating and it was he was uh, you know going through all this and knowing where it was headed and um you know you just hate thinking about that i mean it's hard to even talk about him in the, in the past tense you know he was mm-hmm. someone who was so alive and you know brilliant i mean with this extraordinary mind and and his incredible his soul is just, is such a sensitive and almost too sensitive for this world. You know, I, I can rem- and I, I can remember when we, there was a, a number that we filmed for the birdcage, uh, another Sondheim song. I sang a song called Can That Boy Foxtrot. And uh, the day I filmed it, we did the whole thing for, and with an audience and, and uh, he had the day off and, but he came in that day because he said he wanted to be there for me. Um, for, for moral support, and he, so he, you know, was backstage, you know, listening, and he would be very encouraging, and he, you know, uh, he was um, a great, great human being, and, a, you know, one of the greatest talents who ever lived. Sad. <laughs> yeah, it's very sad, very sad that he's not here anymore. I can't believe it, but he has left, you know, a tremendous legacy. I mean, a great work, brilliantly funny, and
0: Wonderful acting. That's a great loss. Um, but, you know, mm. it, it, it's really touching to hear how he showed up for his, to see his song get yeah shot, even though he wasn't needed that day. I mean, that kind of is a great example yeah. of the kind of nobody person does he that. was.
1: Yeah, nobody does that. But, but Robin Williams did it. Um,
0: those are the kinds of stories that you can only get from these people that were there that, you know. It's amazing. Getting a little misty-eyed. Aw. Um, But so the movie came out. It was a big hit. I think it was like number one for like five weeks or something. Made $170 million. It's
1: crazy. Um, In today's money or 19... Wow, 1996 money. That's definitely even... 96 money. Wow, that's real impressive. Uh, So someone pulled out the inflation calculator. (laughs) um,
0: But uh, yeah, no, it was was a big one. And uh, obviously, you know, teed him up perfectly to become a major movie star. Everything was in place, right? I Mm -hmm. mean... He he totally killed it in in his
1: review for the Hollywood Reporter. They said Nathan Lane is a triumph in the plum role of Albert. But, and yeah, and just pretty because up to that point he had not had any big uh, leading roles in movies, and there he is, just holding his own with Gene Hackman, Diane Weist, yeah, um, uh, but Robin Williams, of course. It
0: wasn't to be. Uh, at least it's not according to him. Uh, it didn't turn out quite as he expected. When it came to Nathan Lane's movie career,
2: it didn't really lead to, uh, you know, uh, a kind of film career that I thought I might have afterwards, uh, just because of it got so much attention. And I remember that afterwards, um, <laughs> um, I mean, look, I've had a great career, and, and it's still going very well. But it was there was a notion of oh well perhaps this will lead to more film stuff and and I you know I did films but it it never it didn't really take off in that way. Um, do you think that was homophobia? Uh, I'm sure a little bit. I'm sure it was a little bit of that. I was asked do the two I was I was offered the, two films after the Birdcage and because everyone sort of assumed that oh you must be getting tons of offers you're just sitting at home. On a, on a chaise, going <laughs> through scripts, eating bonbons. And so, no, I got two offers. One was a film called Mouse Hunt, which I eventually made. Gore Verbinski. Gore Verbinski's first film with um, the wonderful Lee Evans and Chris Walken. Which is a great film. It's fun. It's a fun little, it's a cult children's <laughs> movie. Bizarre. He, he made like a Coen Brothers movie <laughs> right. for children. And um, uh, I was offered Mr. Magoo. Okay. And so I was supposed to meet with this director and they said, um, and I said, Well, what are they gonna would I be you know, would you shave my head and would I i be squinting and he's a little old man, you know, it's all all I remember is the the, the, the cartoon character, right. you know, Jim Backus. But George, you know, that bumping into things, he, things or other because things. he was so that's right. The near sh- I would have loved to see that. All of that. that. And I said, so it, it's that. That's what you would have me do. You'd be putting like a lot of prosthetics and me bumping into furniture. And they kept saying, no, 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 no. And uh, no, no, he's not nearsighted. It's just, there's a whole new Mr. Magoo. And I said, that's all Mr. Magoo is. He's an old man who's bald and nearsighted. And he talks like this, like Jim Packus. And, and so I said, that doesn't make any sense to me at all. There's no character if you take all of that away. Then what is he? That he's just called Mr. Magoo? But it's, well, that doesn't make any sense. But they offered me. There was a ton of money. It was the most money uh, I'd ever been offered to make a movie. Yeah. So there was a, you know, there was a part of me that was like, well, maybe I could make this work. <laughs> For that amount of money, I could make it work. Who um, has Mc- twenty twenty vision? Anyway, <laughs> but he has twenty twenty vision and hair. Uh, oh, God. Uh, anyway, uh, so I opted to do the only other, the the only other option was mouse hunt and cuz he seemed like a a really interesting guy Gore Verbinski, very sure. smart and um talented and you know but his only at that point his only um his big claim to fame was he, he directed the budweiser frogs commercials <laughs> okay. so i didn't know what it would be and right. you know and when they explained it to me you know it's it's two guys you know, in a house trying to kill a mouse <laughs> for two hours. So I was like, really? Uh, these are the choices. <laughs> Mr. Magoo, who's not really Mr. Magoo, who can really see, and and two guys chasing a Tom and Jerry cartoon. Uh, I don't know. But, um, yeah, but I did it. I did mouse hunt. And then, you know, I was with, the, uh, I was with the, an agent at the time who um, – and I went and I said to him, uh, he's now deceased. I said, uh, you know, th- not much has happened after this, you know, the birdcage was, I thought, maybe going to lead to stuff. And he said to me, um, maybe if you weren't so open about your sexuality. And, uh, <laughs> I, um, and I said, really? And, you know, he was gay. He was an old, much an older gay man. Was, was he your agent or an agent? He was my, my, my agent, yeah. And uh, his, his name was Jeff Hunter. He was, you know, he was this shaved head, mustache, (laughs) old queen. And he said, well, maybe if you weren't so open about your sexuality, you might have gotten more offers. I was like, well, gee, thanks a lot. And I left and went to CAA. That was a mistake. (laughs) (laughs) Where fun goes to die. Um, So, um, anyway, that's what happened after the birdcage.
0: Uh, okay <laughs> <laughs> He did that laugh after the Robin Williams thing <laughs> yeah. And he delivered Oh my god he is so funny great. CAA where fun, fun goes, goes to, to die. die Nathan Lane <laughs> Oh my god Um, But yeah it's still like A lot of pain under there Like His trusted agent who's supposed to like Guide his career and be his and Right hand man and also is gay You were too open You know what? <laughs> he didn't want to come out they forced
1: him out Oprah forced him out. Maybe if you weren't so open about your sexuality. (laughs) That's the problem, Nathan. Okay. (laughs) Gotta go to Palm Springs, Toodles. (laughs) Not your time.
0: (laughs) You 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 know Hollywood is like this, you imagine, you hear, but to hear it from the horse's mouth, like right. Nathan Lane sitting here telling us, yeah, that's yeah. what they told me. I don't know. It's it's pretty mind blowing to me.
1: Yeah. And it's like you said, you can't, you couldn't win because even at that time, remember when they're trying to make Rupert Everett into like a handsome leading man and like a, that, that didn't work out, you know? And he was like as non-threatening as you could get and still be like, he's a hunky movie star. Yeah. You know, so. Oh, well.
0: Well, Nathan okay. went back to the theater where he felt comfortable and Broadway embraced him big time. And he's done amazing work there. And he's also done uh, some great work uh, on the big screen and small screen. You mentioned uh, Modern Family. He's had a recurring role on that. And um, he has something exciting coming up. Oh, yeah. He gave you a pretty well, juicy bit right? well two things well, the reason he was even available to do this podcast is he's been in LA shooting a new show which I am so excited about uh-huh. legitimately it's um, it's the uh, Penny Dreadful uh, if you uh-huh. remember the Showtime show that was sort of mixed together all the Victorian monsters right, well, they're right. going in a super different direction with a spin-off series let him talk about it it, it really sounds right up my alley this is set in L.A. in
2: 1938, and it's um, and loosely based on some h- real historical things that were going on. The, the Nazi infiltration of mm-hmm. Los Angeles at the time, which my character is investigating, as well as there's a, a central sort of murder that has to be solved, um, but uh, – there's a young, a wonderful young actor named Daniel Zavato who I'm, I'm partners with on the LAPD. I, I partner with him. He's the first um, uh, Latino detective on the LAPD, and no one will partner with him, and I do. And uh, and so there's it's a lot about his family and and there are many different worlds going on in the in the show and you know it's about the persecution of the latino community and and um there are many parallels to what things that are going on right now but it's a fantastic yarn that john logan has created and and with how these stories intersect and the world of the pachucos you know so that whole era you know of uh, the zoot suitors and and the rise of the um, the um, American Bunt and all these, and then uh, sort of Nazi organizations in L.A.
0: Uh, this is all stuff that's catnip for me. I love all this L.A. history and noir. As well as this
2: sort of Chinatown noir uh, murder mystery in the center of it that we're trying to solve. This very wealthy family has been murdered and left in the L.A. River in this kind of ritualistic murder. They're covered with the... Uh, the paint of the, the you know Santa Muerte, the you know the mm. um, uh, uh, it's it's a sort of gruesome murder and and uh, so they're trying to solve that as well and it all leads to many many different things.
0: Wow, can't wait! Sounds yeah,
2: great. yeah, me too. It's it's been going well and it's really really well written.
0: And anything else on uh, Broadway coming up?
2: Well, I'm not you know we're uh, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I yes, I'm scheduled, and if all the dates work out, because now uh, this this show is, uh, I've been told we're probably doing a second season of the show, and
1: Terrific. so
2: um but in the spring of, of 2021 i'm supposed to be doing death of a salesman on broadway with uh Laurie metcalf and uh joe Mentello is going to direct Whoa. And, and, uh, has that been announced? Scott Rudin is uh, producing. And no, it has not been announced.
0: Oh my god. But it's been Scoop. in the works
2: for a very long time. And you uh, heard it here first. So uh um so i yeah something we've been working on for
0: a long time oh my god that's like Lear and willie loman there's a few parts every actor wants to play
2: yeah yeah no it's it's certainly one of the greats of the 20th century and uh
0: yeah I, i really look forward to that oh my god i'm gonna have to see that you heard it here first spring 2021 On Broadway. Nathan Lane playing Willie Loman, Death of a Salesman. And before that, he's going to be in Showtime's Penny Dreadful City of Angels. So definitely check that out. Nathan, thank you. You you are one of my heroes. So just to spend this time with you was a really very important and exciting moment in my life. And you were awesome. And I'm sorry that guy in the truck was screaming uh, epithets at you. You don't deserve that. You deserve every accolade. Yeah. All right, well, another amazing episode on season 2. Yeah, it's a great job, Seth. Ah, uh, well, my pleasure. Everyone, <laughs> don't forget that, uh, that if you like us, you can give us, you know, good reviews on
1: iTunes so we can yes. always use them and if you don't, please don't, but you probably wouldn't have listened this right. long if you really hated us. Keep it to yourself in this new climate where everybody just thinks they got to rattle on about everything.
0: Yeah. Please. And um, we love uh, hearing from you. So, and we set up this wonderful email address i h i h at THR.com. And that's about it, right? Yeah. Until next week, where we're going to have someone equally amazing. It's Andrew Stanton. Wow, Andrew Stanton from Pixar. From Pi-
1: he hardly ever does interviews.
0: Yeah, this is a super rare interview, and and uh,
1: he, he's going to do Wally. And I just acted like I didn't know that we had interviewed him. <laughs> Andrew well, Stanton. It's like, I I know that we interviewed. Every time I hear his name, I'm like, what? We got Andrew
0: Stanton. I forget. It really is surreal. I was like, whoa, yeah, we got that guy. But yeah, we got Andrew Stanton. And until next week, we'll see you in Hollywood.